The Emergency Medical Minute proudly presents Dr. Katie Sprinkle, an emergency medicine physician who recently summited El Capitan and shares general advice about how to survive in the wilderness. This is Untamed. Medicine in wilderness, wilderness is medicine. Thank you. Hello and welcome. Thank you all for being here. My name is Katie Sprinkle. I'm an emergency medicine physician also. I work mostly in Aurora, where, granted, you know, you could argue there's not a whole lot of wilderness in the backcountry sense, but there is plenty of wildness to be found, and I love working there. My other passion, though, is wilderness, being outside and being in the outdoors and practicing medicine. And, and so I was actually given pretty free reign to talk about whatever I wanted tonight. And so what I settled on was five topics that I felt like were most applicable to you and I as adventurers in the Colorado mountains, as summiters of 14ers, as mountain bikers and trail runners in the front range and climbers of big walls and small boulders. And I also think these things are all going to be encountered. If you spend enough time outdoors, you're going to find every one of the things we talk about here tonight. And then finally, I think all of these things are also really incredible illustrations of what the human body is capable of and pretty cool things to nerd out about. So let's go ahead and dive in. The first topic is frostbite. This photo was taken from a really bitterly cold morning on Quandary, and you can kind of see these uh, ice crystals in the bottom right of the frame. And so the problem with frostbite is actually that you can see these ice crystals, they're actually forming between your cells and in your blood vessels and parts of your body that are farthest away from your core and most exposed to the cold. And they cause really actually irreparable damage to your blood vessels and nerves and cells and tissues. And this problem is compounded by the fact that when you're exposed to cold, your body's natural response is to shunt blood away from your extremities and conserve the core, so your brain and your heart and your intestines. And I think, honestly, most of us have experienced at least something in this spectrum with a phenomenon called screaming barfies. Can I get a show of hands? Anyone experienced a screaming barfie? Okay, great. So to explain, ice climbing is kind of the perfect setup for a screaming barfie. You can imagine arm is up, so you're having to work to overcome gravity to deliver blood flow to your hand. You may or may not be overgripping an ice tool. You may have some tight constricting gloves. And you're definitely in a cold environment if you're ice climbing. And you actually do experience some early tissue ischemia. Ischemia meaning that you're not getting adequate oxygen and blood flow to those tissues. And actually, that part's not that painful. It's more when you get down and you let your hands rest and relax, and you get this deep, gnawing, really, really severe pain in your hands, and it's really aptly named a screaming barfie, uh, and you can picture that. Uh, and so that is on the spectrum of what frostbite is, is tissue ischemia. Oh, as a complete aside, actually, a tip that I learned from a good friend of mine who's going to be speaking later, Olga Dobronowski, is to tape hand warmers to your wrists while ice climbing to help mitigate barfies. And so back to frostbite. When the blood flow returns and you have this incredibly painful response because these tissues and blood vessels really can't handle the blood flow coming back to this barrier, you're going to get blistering and fluid collection under the skin and these blisters can be filled with blood as well. And then even months down the line, you're going to have a demarcation line of what tissue is going to survive and, and what's ultimately going to need to be amputated in the worst cases. And so the one kind of cool human trick that our bodies have all evolved to do, and this is something you should watch for next time you're out in the cold, because it's inevitably happened to every one of us, is about five to 10 minutes into a cold exposure, there's a phenomenon called cold-induced vasodilation. 
And this is an involuntary response where your blood vessels, instead of the shunting I mentioned, where everything's really clamped down in your hands and feet and face, where you have this rush of warm blood to the surface of the skin. And this happens in cycles throughout cold exposure. And if you're like me, I think my first question was, well, can you train that? Can you make it better? And unfortunately not, actually. It looks like repeated cold exposure is not necessarily helpful. It has a lot to do with your genetics and what type of climate your ancestors needed to survive in. Uh, and actually, exercise does help. And so one of the things you can do if you're worried about losing a limb or a nose or a, a digit in cold is to move around and exercise. Exercise does increase both the frequency and how vigorous the response of this vasodilation and warmth is. Other things that you can do in the backcountry are simple things like ibuprofen or aspirin. And actually, this is something that we institute in the hospital for frostbite patients, not necessarily aimed at pain alleviation, but more towards decreasing these inflammatory mediators that are produced and lead to all this fluid collection. And then there's the simple stuff. So if you have anything constricting blood flow, like a tight boot, loosen it up, remove any wet clothing and replace it with dry. If there's any concern that you are going to thaw an extremity and then it may refreeze while you're getting back to shelter, for instance, uh, the recommendation is actually to keep it frozen and thawed only once and not to repeat any freeze-thaw cycles. And then finally, I wanted to show you a pretty cool therapy that can be offered in intensive care unit settings. The picture on the left is someone's foot before this therapy, and you can see um, this is an angiogram, and so all the blood vessels are injected with dye. And you can see, as I mentioned, when ice crystals form, these tiny blood vessels completely clot off and are non-functional. And there is a treatment where you can inject a really strong clot-busting medication to open up those vessels, and this has been shown to actually decrease the need for amputation in frostbite victims. One down, moving right on to our second topic, and that's lightning. So does anyone recognize where this is? It's a diamond, yeah. So this is Long's Peak. This is the north face of Long's Peak, and you can kind of make out the diamond shape on that wall. As an aside, this was a 4th of July weekend a few years ago where I actually got engaged. I, I think ultimately this was... The only way that my partner, my now husband, decided that we were going to get a diamond was to get on this piece of rock. And so aside from being a really exciting weekend in that respect, this was probably the scariest experience I've ever had on a rock face, and that was due to lightning. And if you spent time in the Colorado mountains, you know that the Alpine Start has really good reason in Colorado, right? It's really important to get up, often pre-dawn, get up and down before the lightning. And despite having a good Alpine Start that day, the lightning came early, and about two pitches or so from the top. We were huddled down, just kind of hoping for the best and probably the scariest experience of my life. And some of you may have even felt that buzz and the, there's a palpable buzz when static electricity builds up. Your hair might even stand up on end. And, and this is really, your life is in jeopardy and a big lightning strike is imminent and you need to get down. If you've ever experienced this, you know how scary it is viscerally. So what actually happens with a lightning strike? You may be surprised to hear that the majority of lightning strikes, half about, actually come through the ground. And so this is a picture of a shoe of a lightning strike victim I, I treated, and the lightning current had actually come through the ground into the body. And that's why they say if you're unable to descend and you really can't escape, that you should try to stand on something insulated like a coiled rope or like a foam sleeping pad. Second most common way to get struck by lightning is actually from side splash. And that's why they tell you, you know, don't stand near an isolated tree or a tall pole. That's a very common way to have lightning current 
transferred to your body. That's also the recommendation that if you're forced to be in a field type situation or in a group of people during a lightning storm to not stand in a cluster. Uh, the recommendation is actually 20 feet between each person during a lightning storm for this reason, for side splash. And so the recommendations are ultimately to descend. The very first thing you need to do is get down. The Ideal shelter is going to be a house with a roof. Obviously, that's not possible. Secondary would be a car with a hardtop roof. And then if that's not an option, dense forest is kind of your next go-to or a ravine. Avoid shallow caves, and then deep caves are also okay. And this is the classic lightning position. Again, much better to descend, but if you're unable to escape and you feel lightning strike is imminent, this is the position. And this is just a cool, this, sorry, this photo is so blurry kind of a cool human trick. And this is what um, lightning does to people, actually. This is one of the neatest things I've ever seen from lightning victims is these are not painful. They're like temporary lightning tattoos. Uh, they actually go away within about 24 hours. They're called Lichtenberg figures. And they may have some pigmentation deeper in the skin, but again, the pathology is not really well understood. They're, they're not thought to be burns or harmful. Again, a temporary lightning tattoo. It's otherwise unexplained. Okay, our next topic is hypothermia. And I wanted to start this topic with a case that really made hypothermia a little bit more real for me. This is a case from February of this year, and it was a young man about my age that was, by all accounts, having a really great day out with his partner. He skied up to the kind of the top of the map and was doing some laps and actually suffered a fall. And so he had fallen over some exposed rocks and skidded quite a far ways down the hill and ended up breaking his tibial plateau and multiple ribs. And so he was unable to self-extricate and get himself out. And you can see it's a pretty icy bed, and he's in schemo gear. He doesn't have a lot of clothing. And so he describes in his accounts talking about how the ice underneath his body is just melting and creating this icy slope that he keeps sliding down into new snow. He waited actually ultimately six hours for this rescue to come and didn't have a lot of clothing to help and ended up doing okay. But really for me, this cemented the point that when you leave for a day, you need to be able to spend a night out in wherever you are going and be prepared to do that safely. So let's talk a little bit about what the body does in hypothermia. And shivering is actually really effective. You can generate two degrees of heat per hour with just shivering alone. It does take calories, so it's important to remember to maintain hydration and high-carbohydrate caloric intake in order to have effective shivering. And there is a tipping point with shivering, actually. Around 90 degrees is where your body starts to become less effective at generating its own heat. And at this point, too, your mental status is also starting to decline. We see apathy, poor decision-making, and as you get lower than 90 degrees, actually, you're starting to become lethargic and difficult to arouse. Ultimately, though, it's not actually the mental status issues that kill most people. It's a cardiac instability issue where the electrical rhythms of the heart become unstable. Okay, so things that you can do in the backcountry... Obviously, bring extra clothing. Always, always, always bring extra layers. Uh, emergency blanket, bivy, and then extra food and water. One case I wanted to speak about really briefly is this uh, really extraordinary case. It was 20 years ago now and still being talked about all the time. This is a woman, she was actually a surgical resident at the time, went skiing with some colleagues and ended up falling and actually went head down into a stream and the ice was really thick. Her colleagues were unable to get her out of this several inch thick ice. Her head was actually under the ice, but she was able to find an air pocket so she did not drown, which is actually pretty crucial to her story. 
She was under the ice for a full 80 minutes. When she was finally able to be extracted, there was a total of two hours of CPR before they were able to get her on life support and her temp. When she got to the hospital, it was 57 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's the lowest recorded temperature by far of anyone to ever survive this type of injury. She did wake up about 10 days after the incident and was paralyzed from the neck down and was, by all reports, um, really upset with her colleagues for rescuing her. And eventually, actually, she did recover and walked out of the hospital. Later that year, even, was actually able to return to work. I believe she's now a radiologist. So incredible story. <laughs> really, what happens with hypothermia, and in her case, kind of illustrates this in a, in a real shift in medicine in recent years is the fact that hypothermia can actually be protective for the brain. And so this is probably a talk on its own that could be a few hours long, but that, all that to say that hypothermia does have some really neat effects that medicine is utilizing to protect brain function. In summary, it really just slows down brain function enough and metabolism so that you don't have the harm in the absence of blood flow. All right, moving right along. Rattlesnakes. So snake bites. If you spend enough time in the front range, you're going to find a rattlesnake. It's just a matter of time. And to be honest, rattlesnake bites, I guess a, a lot of you seem to raise your hand if, that you work in the medical field already. So you may be in on this joke, but this is what they teach you in medical school. Um, this, by the way, is a picture of a rattlesnake bite injury to the hand. And this gentleman kept all his digits and ended up doing okay. But there are five T's of snake bites that they teach you in medical school, majority of snake bite victims are male. Often involve alcohol. <laughs> Teasing meaning the majority of snake bites are actually on the hand and forearm, which implies that these people are actually reaching towards a snake. And then I'll let you make uh, what you will of the last uh, two T's. Okay. And talking about snake bite treatment in the field, there's actually not a whole lot to say, and there's a lot more to talk about what not to do. And I think it's actually pretty interesting about the fact that we have to tell people not to do these things, but let's go through them briefly here. The first thing not to do is do not put a suction device on your snake bite. These have actually been shown to be harmful in causing local tissue destruction. Do not attempt to suck the venom out of the snake. <laughs> bite wound. This actually can be harmful to, and you can get mucous membrane penetration of the venom, which is dangerous, and it, it does not help the victim. Again, seems silly we should need to say this, but do not cut the wound open farther with your own knife. And then finally, don't apply electric current to your snake bite wounds. What should you do? You should get to a hospital that has Crofab. Crofab is the anti-venom. And so um, regardless of the severity of bite People can become young, healthy hosts like you and I can become quite sick with um, snake bite envenomation. So you should get yourself to a hospital and be seen. We're on our last one. So this is actually a little time-lapse video of preparing for a big wall trip recently. And I wanted just to talk briefly about what I put in my medical kit. And the medical kit is kind of a small blue bag that ends up on the floor. And this all with the caveat of saying that I'm pretty into this and I change my medical kit a lot depending on where I'm going and <laughs> for how long and, and, and what we're doing. And so also with the caveat that I think the number one wish for most anyone going into the backcountry should be a nurse. And since you can't carry a nurse in a backpack, here's what I carry. The basic wound care stuff is pretty intuitive. Alcohol swabs, gloves, 
band-aids. I also carry steri strips and I do carry some sutures. So if you have access to that kind of thing, that's it's small and compact and great. Dermabon, you can at least get veterinary grade Dermabon on Amazon these days. And this is just tissue adhesive. And then I also bring some antibiotic ointment. You know, quick clot is probably the cheapest one on Amazon, but these are impregnated gauzes that help with more brisk bleeding, help, uh, help you form clots. And I also carry a blister kit that th carries things like paper tape and uh, some moleskin or other blister dressings. Depending on who is in the group, I may or may not bring SAM splints and ACE bandages. And then there's some medications, and I believe another speaker is going to touch a little bit on altitude medications. So steroids, altitude medications, um, antibiotics, nausea meds, and diarrhea meds are the main. And then the last thing, I think, is pulse ox. Those are also pretty cheap on Amazon. They give you a heart rate reading and an oxygen reading. And so I think the main thing about a medical kit is to find one that works for you and bring it. Don't leave it at the base. Don't leave it in the car. Don't leave it in the trunk. Find one that you've made and you're comfortable with and that you'll reliably have in your, your everyday pack and, and bring it with you. And that's all I have. So thank you very much.